everybody and welcome to the very 121st episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about board games and this week and this week only, friendship, because I'm joined by my friends, Ava Foxfort. Are you not going to be our friend next week? No, uh, and Tom Brewster. <laughs> Hello, friend. Hello, friend. Temporary friend. Temporary and friends. let me tell you... I'm still not quite recovered from more shucks. How are you two doing? Turns out staying up about like a couple of hours past my bedtime now just like leaves me a little demented for the rest of the week. I would also vote for a little demented. Okay. It's okay. a good vibe. I, I, I'm surprised at how a 2.30am finish and one a very large beer completely skewed my entire week so far. It's, it's all what weird. What uh thursday thursday at time of recording yeah yes and the time is podcast time in this episode we're going to be talking about no more or less than four board games well four tentpole board games if you will holding up the large what's that fancy word for tent that people use for weddings marquee the marquee of the 121st podcast Oh, I love it. Tom is going to be talking about New York Zoo, a game from Uwe Rosenberg about squeezing flamingos into a box. Ava is going to be talking about Maria, an Austrian war game, which you will, of course, know as the uh, child of the award-winning Friedrich, another Austrian war game, because who doesn't know their Austrian war games back to front? I am going to be talking about Little Town, a little uh, game from some Japanese designers that we played earlier this year that I have not been able to stop thinking about. And finally, we are all going to talk about The King is Dead, a game where The King is Dead and people are trying to make that less of a problem than it is. I'm excited. That's quite exciting. Yeah. You framed everything really excitingly. It's really nice. It's quite oh, a stellar Ava, lineup. If this was a, a music festival, wait, hot, if this was a board game festival for board games and you saw these <laughs> four games on the lineup, you'd be front row seats. What would some of the little, you know, on music festivals where they have like the smaller text below the bigger text for all the people who aren't headlining, mm. what would some of the like little text be? Like a fictional board games that don't exist but could, but they'd have to be like kind of unpopular. <sighs> Cube, Cube Shuffler. Colon, France. <laughs> Dungeon uh, Fight, third edition. Oh, yes. Nice. <laughs> love it. Love it. Laser Diplomacy, the expansion. And then it would lasers. have, like, that would have its own subtitle that's like Voyages in the oh, Space Quadrant. No, it would have, like, one of those nouns that you two hate. It would be, like, Laser Diplomacy, colon, rescuing the planet Ictho from. <laughs> That's a lot of nouns. Yeah, I'd, uh, let's just move on. Uh, Sting and then Tom. Do you want to go <laughs> Sting's playing at this festival. Uh, Sting is just below New York Zoo. All right, well, you two, now we have to include this in the podcast. You two are funny. So then the actual Sting will go in here, right? Sure, yeah. No, that, that sounds good. We'll put a Sting in, yeah. Yeah. Right, cool. Tom, take it away. <laughs> I'm putting no stings in this podcast. <laughs> I, no, I, no. As if I didn't saving them uh, all for the zoo, Tom. <laughs> as if I didn't realize that as soon as you went, oh, a sting, yeah, cool. <laughs> I, I, I know what I'm being got for sure. Okay, let's talk about New York Zoo. New York Zoo, a 
teased we talked about a little bit on the last live podcast but we didn't have enough time to finish the chat new york zoo is a game by uve rosenberg he's found a box made of cardboard and he's filled it with animals made of wood <laughs> i kind of half talked about this on the last podcast i'm gonna quickly give you the rundown of what it is so that those that didn't listen to our most excellent live podcast which is going up after wait after we before. record this podcast yes but nailed it <laughs> just <Okay>. move on <laughs> before you hear this podcast you hear unless this you podcast. listen to things in the wrong order <laughs> time <laughs> Um, a quick way of describing this box is that it's a uh, tetromino placement game where the tetromino's themselves are enclosures for animals and you can fill the individual pieces with animals and then when you fill them with animals you get more pieces and the first person to fill their grid completely with pieces wins immediately. Uh, the core action of the game is you have this wonky looking elephant piece and you move it around a board and you take the action on the space that it lands on. If it's a tetromino space, you get that piece and you put it on your board, but you've got to put an animal into that enclosure from your little like storage houses on the side or an existing enclosure. If you land on an animal space, you get those animals and you put them into enclosures on your board or into storage houses. Um, and sometimes you will cross lines for breeding. It's what Rosenberg does best, uh, where specific mm. kinds, they've got specific animals on them. And if you have a pair of those animals in an enclosure, you get another one of those animals. So it's a quicker way of filling up your enclosures. Uh, and if an enclosure ever fills completely with animals, you bin them all, except for one. You can keep one if you want and replace them with uh, an attraction. So, for example, the exchange rate is When you say bin like... them all, sorry, I know you're in the, in the thick <laughs> yeah. of the teach there, but you just you fill an enclosure with meerkats and they're all taken away to, the, to, to some nebulous other building that is not in the game. Yes, they they go on they go on holiday, right? Um, right. But they and where might they go on holiday? The exchange rate it's like six meerkats to a roller coaster, or like okay. four meerkats for two hot dog stands and an ice cream stand. Um, that, actually, that's important. That sounds misleading. The the whenever you fill an enclosure completely, you can take any one of the available attractions, and they're more like blocky tetromino pieces, but they vary in size. But you always you just get one based on, you know, even if you've been like six meerkats or four, you don't get a different size piece. You always just get a right. piece from the supply. So that means that when you're choosing what shape of enclosure you want, the bigger ones will take up more space on your board, but will be harder to fill with animals? Exactly. And that's like, uh, you know, uh, that's one of the things that like wasn't immediately, you know, you, Quentin, a board game professional, uh, mm. immediately beeline to that part of the the rules and all the implications of those rules which I didn't kind of like grok until I got to that stage in the game because it's quite clever with how it teaches itself to you strategically sort of as you play it um, yeah. like it's one of those games that when you're on your first play you're merrily just sort of like bunging animals in enclosures and happily sort of like sorting out this puzzle and then as the game reaches its conclusion it narrows to a point that kind of becomes more strategic because you think about it more in those closing moments and then you're like okay now i want to play again that i've i've seen that that's how the game flows if that makes sense absolutely and then how long does it take to start from start to finish about half an hour 40 minutes maybe on the okay. first try <laughs> depends and how many you I play mean, it with um, final most important question for me mm. how fun is it <laughs> how fun is it out of 10 how fun 
No, just on a raw emotional level. How do you feel having clawed your way to the far end of an experience of New York Zoo? Good, good fun. Good, 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 good fun. It's like, I think that the thing that's... Um, the thing, like, to talk about, to skip over, like, the basics and just go straight to, like, the meaty part of this that I kind of missed out on the last podcast was that at its core, it's a race game. And you don't think of it as a race game because it's got tiles and, like, little chunky wooden animals. And it seems like a game that's going to have victory points, and then it just doesn't. And it's an aspect, the fact that it's a race is an aspect you forget, and then it snaps into focus when you lose that race because you got lost in the puzzle. And, like, what I mean by that is that, like, yeah, like, there's stuff going on under the hood of the design that you don't immediately appreciate. So, like, the stacking of those tetrominoes, they start really big and they get smaller. And that's kind of interesting because it becomes this wobbly little puzzle of, like, do I go for a big enclosure to fill a ton of space? But it's harder to fill with animals, like you were saying earlier. And, like, the Mm. lack of points means that you're purely focusing on this puzzle and you can focus on the race. And it feels, like, sharp and well put together as this package that's so, like, immediate and, like, so easy to grasp like it's such a good family game and when you look back on your board you think about all the corners you could cut for efficiency and stuff like it's this really neat light box that i'm hankering to play again not necessarily because it's like a vast ocean of possibilities and like it's not doing these like crazy new things in like any way but it's just super like gentle approachable and this tactile puzzle that like I've got, like, written in, like, this little note thing here that, like, it reminds me of really good mobile games, like, phone Mm. games. Like, Mini Metro is a game that I really, really love to play because of the satisfying, like, pop of the lines, like, clicking together and, like, the whir of the trains moving back and forth. And it's just this very, like, clicky, immediate experience. And I don't necessarily need to, like, strategize and be really, really good at it every single time. It's just, like, such a lovely thing to just be involved with and it's like the best roll and write games that I, I play a lot of those solo for the same reason that it's just this very satisfying like ritual almost and new york zoo has that like satisfying pop as you like socket things down and fill enclosures and then like this whir of kind of just human energy kind of babbling around it and it's just it's just nice it's really nice it's yeah really i mean nice we, game. we know that filling grids with tetromino spaces is incredibly satisfying we've learned that over the last couple of mm-hmm. years we know that uwe rosenberg's breeding mechanics where if two animals are hanging out then you get more wooden animals it is incredibly satisfying the idea that you're telling me this is like a 30 minute game which i think is such a nice slot mm-hmm. uh, with a small box full of gorgeous pieces that has two of the most satisfying mechanics just side by side like i'm in i really <laughs> want to try this the only yeah. question i've got is tom have you played baron park I have played Baron Park. It was a long time ago. Um, and I think that, like, my read on it would be that, like, they're incredibly, like, they're games that are similar enough that maybe you don't, you there's not room for both, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard a lot of people, including Matt, say that Baron Park is a game that, like, becomes the, like, the, the right level of crunch for, like, you know, people that play a lot of board games when you add in those, like, monorails and the Bad News Bears expansion. Yeah, when you get the expansion. Right. And maybe this game has that level of, like, tactility, the same level of tactility as Baron Park, but, like, I'm not sure where it sits on that, like, complexity scale. You know, I don't know whether it's, like, on the same level as base... but Maybe it's between the two, like, just above base game Baron Park on Crunch, but not quite as much as with the expansion, maybe? Does it... Does it have a moment as satisfying as putting a tiny golden bear statue into a gap that you've been forced to leave on a little grid 
That's, yeah. This is my main question. If I'm trying to compare between those two games, what I care about is, is it got anything? What? Oh, it's just lovely. I just love doing that. There's, I've had to leave a little hole. Oh, that's so annoying. I love teaching it because I'm just like, yeah, you can't go in there. You can't go in there. But wait, don't worry. In a minute. But Well, it has that a lot because... When you oh. feel, because when you fill an enclosure with animals, you get an attraction. The attractions are like literally like you, one of them is is a six or eight tile space, like it's massive. But the rest yeah. of them are like ones and twos and threes that you can fit in little like annoying slots. So you mm. get that a lot. However, they're not golden bears. They are <laughs> hot dog stands and the oh. like, which is more sad. Uh, I it's good. feel that my interest in Baron Park was always limited by my interest in bears. Right, I'll, I'll put that out there because bears are such a you know they're very they're extremely online at the minute. Um, <laughs> can, whenever I log on, you know, bears there's always a picture of a bear somewhere, <laughs> and so I always felt this like intense pressure to like Baron Park <laughs> because everyone likes because bears. of the abundance of bear. <laughs> online yeah tom you know you'll have seen them you log on to you know facebook and there's your mum showing a photo of a bear again so yeah Did, that's why i'm interested in new york zoo more does it feel any better if you use my headcanon which is that baron park is about building a park for bears where they go to look at humans in little tiny <laughs> human enclosures oh that's that good. is can you i mean yeah because honestly i never really loved the this is a more serious criticism. I never really loved the aesthetics of Baron Park because it's such a peculiar zoo you're building. Like Baron Park is like building all of these weirdly shaped bear habitats with no way until you add the monorails, I guess, in the expansion for humans to actually access any of those bears. Mm. Um, and I, it, I mean, it's very petty, but we're talking about petty things. Board games are petty boxes full of petty <laughs> problems. Does New York Zoo, when you look down at your finished thing, look like a real zoo? No. Not at right. all. It, it looks like a giant, like jungle of cages, like that. Exactly like Baron Park. Like. Yeah, yeah. Then in in that regard, but maybe it has a roller coaster in it as well, which makes it look a hundred and fifty percent more like a zoo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what I what I would say though is while while I really love Baron Park and I really love the fact that it makes you really care about like chasing after like oh that thing is one point better for me so I should do that but I don't know I don't want to and things like that. The problem with it is that that means that it adds up to a game where you end having to do a lot of adding up and mm, lots mm. of finicky numbers, like, what, 17 plus 39. And I hate that moment, and I think it's a bit telling that, like, my favourite game of Baron Park was the one where we all finished on the final turn. Um, we all completely completed the park, um, which was lovely. And then... Uh, realised that the shapes of our entire parks were such that we could push them together into a perfect square. Ooh, wow. And Very so we'd made nice. Ultimate Bear Park <laughs> <laughs> by pushing all of our boards together into a really satisfying square. And we didn't count. And it was so much more satisfying than any other game of that that I've ever played, <laughs> even when I've won. <laughs> like... Um, so yeah, so I'm really tempted by while while I'm sad about the absence of golden bear statues, mm. I'm really tempted by the idea of a thing where you don't have to count at the end, like just a clean race. I yes. can't remember where we had this discussion. I think it was during the closing ceremony of All Shucks, but was I banging on about how too many games have points in them? Or yeah, was that the last yeah, podcast? no, we had a we had a we did have a ramble on that yeah. topic. <laughs> 
so like but this is exactly what i'm talking about you know the idea the fact that baron park is lovely and simple but then it ends with arithmetic whereas yeah. new york zoo simply ending when someone has filled their park mm. and they have completed the challenge is yeah. that not just a superior ending yes just Ava yes. says yes like it's it has to, to be a superior ending <laughs> yeah tom's thinking no I... so yeah i'm thinking in general terms like to me like it's always like having to make a table full of people add do a load of maths when they haven't been doing maths up to that point yeah no that's i i'm on side i'm on side <laughs> I but how satisfying is the end of new york Zoo? how like well okay actually one of my favorite things that uh, happened in my game of new york zoo that i played was i was playing with my family and i was about to place so the way that i was going to win the game was by placing an attraction it was a two a two space attraction that was going to go like in uh the, the perfect slot for it and that would have won me the game and it was going to win me the game until my 10 year old sister <laughs> went hey we can stop him from winning. And the way we can do that is by, like, if one of us gets to that that specific piece, he'll have to do the same thing but in two turns because we'll only have one pieces to do, the, like, the, the last two slots. I could have done a got you right back by placing the three piece that she needed in exactly, like, on my board, <laughs> but I couldn't because I only had a two space left. So it was, like, this weird kind of, like, thing where I couldn't, stop her from winning the game but she could stop me from winning the game based on the mm. way that we'd done the puzzle because i was relying on those little spaces to fill in the last little steps of my puzzle whereas she was building she was making sure there were like as few gaps as possible except for this three space that she knew no one else was gonna go for if that makes sense yeah sure yeah. i'm thinking now i'm thinking about two things really the first off is like that's a cute story but then if i replace your 10 year old sister with matt i immediately become aggravated <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is delightful hearing you getting completely wrecked by your 10 year old sister but <laughs> yeah that, that's awesome but um, but no, something I'm... that's like a nice clean race right up until it turns out oh i didn't leave quite the right type of space yeah. for what's left is that's kind ooh. of that's what I'm thinking is how, like, at the beginning of a complicated Euro game like Great Western Trail, you know, you know, because you have that same opening. While it's very complicated, you at least know at the start of that game exactly how to screw people over because you all have identical starting points. Um, but by the end of a Euro game, which leans on victory points, it's very difficult to read someone's board. Mm. Whereas I guess that's another advantage of, you know, a game ending in a race style thing is not just that you don't have to do the arithmetic, but because it becomes more readable, even into a complicated late game. Yes. Question mark. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> yes. It, that's that's definitely true because at the start you've just got this board that's just like a massive soup of like empty space that you just fill with whatever you have on hand and then it narrows down closer and closer. Like you start paying way more attention in the late game because like it becomes more manageable as it goes on rather than more fiddly, right? Mm. Like instead of you know player two puts down that seven space and that will give them an option to then put the next one and you're putting it together like that's that no one's doing that but at the end of the game if you're looking at a piece that's like four spaces big, you can see exactly like every permutation of where that's going to fit on their board because they've got a limited amount of space and where would be optimal for them to put it and you can work it out like quicker. So it gets simpler rather than more complex as the game heads on, I think. So it, it leads to a dramatic finish like every time. So that is New York Zoo, a game by Uwe Rosenberg published by Capstone and Feuerland. And it is good and satisfying and nice and simple. And you know what is none of those things? It's our next game that Ava's going to talk about, which is called Maria.
I really thought you were about to say it's our next guest, Ava. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I want to talk about Maria because uh, last podcast at the uh, as part of All Shucks, I was dubbed Queen Fiddle. All hail um, Queen Fiddle! All hail Queen. On account of how much I, how much more I'm willing to put up with fiddliness game in games than Quins, I think in particular, but also the rest <laughs> of the team. Like, I think I have a willingness to dive into things that are over the top in that direction. Um, So I wanted to talk, and we didn't really have time to talk about everything because I just got very excited about uh, Combat Commander. Um, (laughs) uh, Slightly problematically and worrying that I shouldn't be getting so excited about war. Uh, I wanted to talk about my actual favourite war game. Oh no, what have I done? Uh, Maria, which is the game that, first of all, has more th- so much fiddle in it that like I am not sure if I am capable of teaching it. Um, wow! Wow! Second of all, has more clever ideas than any game I have ever played. Wow! wow. Now I'm relieved on two counts. The first of which is this sounds like it's going to be an interesting discussion of a war game, which is not always the case. Second off, it's completely out of print, so. We're not even at risk of you steering our listeners down a a, a dark path full of um, <laughs> yeah. Hex- no, hexes. I think there is going to be another uh, reprint at some point. Um, uh, uh, it is a very beloved game, and there is also you could. I've not played it, but you could try out Friedrich, which has a weird online em- implementation that is a lot of the same mechanics. Um, uh, not all of them. Certainly not all of the ones I'm going to be talking about today, but. Um, uh the prequel to this or the the predecessor to this um that is possibly even more asymmetrical and weird um but we're not talking about friedrich we're talking about maria we're talking about maria Teresa, who i found out from the box the box back the other day uh it, her motto was justice and mildness wow yeah that's that's not bad for a leader yeah for a leader who we're about to talk about all of the wars that she was involved in <laughs> um so right so uh maria is about the war of the austrian succession and it was basically a war where a load of people thought maria Theresa. uh they first of all they agreed that she could be the next holy roman emperor and then they decided wait a second she's a lady we can't have that happen um, and Oops. Europe split into like various sides and various factions and started beefing at each other, um, which is what they'd like to do in that time the most. I won't go too deep into any of the history stuff, but it is interesting. Like I've heard someone talk about this period as like the first world war. Like actually, if you think, think about a world war as being something that involves like all geographical parts of the world. This was the first war where everyone got stuck in, um, in some form or another. That's that, like, just tentatively. I'm going to jump in here to prevent uh, very progressive comments showing up. That sounds like a European historian's perspective. Um, would this really have involved, you know, China and... Oh, of you know... course it is. <laughs> of course it's a ludicrously <laughs> European. So, because the only reason it involved other bits of the world was because of awful, horrible colonialism. Right. Um, right, right like, right. it's basically, this was a war that was involved, that, that involves was mostly in Central Europe, but had battlefields in far-flung places that nobody really cared about enough because it was just apart from as a symbol of their power. So, uh, blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> but 
most of that stuff is actually ab- abstracted into an event system and maria is really focused on um on the european theater um and the way it does this is with some really weird ideas i'm not going to go into too much detail even though i've already just rambled about the war of yesterday <laughs> too much already because i just want to focus on a couple of like brilliantly weird things about this game um, the first of them is a three-player game. I think there is a two-player variant, but it basically has to be played three-player. However, there were at least, I think, six factions in this war. Um, and in order to make them play right at three-player and give every player like enough stuff to do in quite an asymmetrical war, one player is actually on the side of Prussia fighting against Austria on one side of the map, but also allied with austria on the other side of the map (laughs) okay so i mean that's it's complicated politically but practically speaking it just means three players are fighting all both of their opponents uh yes yeah yeah easy peasy yeah which is nice which is nice and and it doesn't even require that much um kind of double think on a part of the player who is actually playing effectively playing both sides um because those wars are completely separate and like there's no way that like their influence on this side really affects their influence on the other side because they're just from totally opposite sides of Europe. Although this is a board that's like been it shows you on the map what the board represents and it's just got these two boxes that are linked together down at the bottom. But they're actually like I can't I don't I can't do gestures, so this isn't gonna work in a podcast, <laughs> but like part of Europe has had to be like rotated and shifted around and the entire map kind of distorted in order to make these things line up and fit neatly onto a game board. And this is the other exciting bit. So this board, um it's like point to point with routes going between different places, all of the cities and towns and whatnot of uh Europe or these bits of Europe. Um, uh, but overlaid over the gri- over the map is a grid of uh, squares, each square having one of the four card suits in. So, oh snap! Yeah, so this means that, like, you know, I'm not, I can't remember uh, actual names of uh, actual places, but like Hamburg might be a spades town, while uh, <laughs> well, it's near Hamburg. I can't remember anything near Hamburg. Where another German town is uh, in uh, Hearts Country. What that means is each turn, each faction gets a, a number of bonus cards into their thing, and it's a standard card deck with a couple of modifications. Um, and if you are attacking from a Hearts place, you need to attack with Hearts. But your opponent might be in a Spades place and therefore defending with Spades. Um, and that means if you can find multiple fronts to attack someone where they're in the same uh, suit, but you're in a different one, you can kind of pull their resources out in one place and push them into others. Now, this kind of makes no thematic sense, but someone pointed out um, on the internet that like, what it means is that you're making the sorts of decisions that generals had to make in terms of like where, can, where will be the most digital, without having to think about without having to have like obscure rules for like different types of terrain or um the particular landscape or the way that the weather was at that time they just get to abstract it out into like you're going to be strong here this turn but you're going to be weak here what are you going to do about that how are you going to deal with that that's really nice and satisfying um it's also like a really simple um and really tricky choice 
um, of you take turns playing cards into a combat and you can... The difference between what your opponent has played and what you've played is how many tr tr units you lose. Um, how many okay, um, you lose. and what happens if your opponent doesn't have a card at all? Uh, well, so this is what's interesting. Where, if, when it becomes your turn, you can end the combat immediately. You can always say, right, that's it. I'm done, I'm done with this. I'm going to stop fighting. Or you can play a card. So if someone leads in with a, with a one and you're like, actually, I don't mind losing one troop, that's fine. But you might put in your last four, thinking that that has you winning, but then they put in a seven and the gap is now much bigger and you're in a lot more trouble than you were before. Mm. Um, so that's really nice and interesting and that's really nice and clever. Um, <laughs> and it plays so tensely. Like you've got um, units moving around the back, but you've got a little piece of note paper that tells you how much is on, uh, how many troops they've got. So you get to be a bit secretive about where you're, where you're strongest until you get into a battle. Um, problems are like i mean you know we talked about the queen fiddle thing like there is literally <laughs> an entire page of rules um for the annexation of silesia <laughs> <laughs> oh, which is an event that happens once during the game um and you never have to do again but is incredibly important because it's like the first bit of the game between prussia and austria is like this initial war that there will probably be a treaty made at some point that says, right, you can do this, I'm going to do this, we divide that up. And and that's fascinating and interesting, but oh my God, it's a lot of rules to try and teach <laughs> someone about why they need to care about this particular front for a while, but only in a very particular way. And they need to make peace for a while. You can make treaties in this and like... All of the deals are binding, so if you say, like, right, okay, so we'll make peace here, and I will keep retreating this peace for the next three turns, or I will move away from the border, you can do that, you can agree to that, and they have to follow it, but also can get really pedantic about the rules and do that in a way that's, like, the least of it. Oh, I don't know. It's There's a lot in this game, and I think it is so clever, and I think it is so fiddly, <laughs> and, yeah. I, well, well listening to you talk it's the thing that impresses me is that like when you look at photos of maria you can see that it's it it has all of the like aggressive deviation of units that or sort of diversity of units that i associate with war games there are counters on the board there are cubes representing supply trains there are discs representing everyone's generals so it's not like this is a game that's trying to be simple but what i like is that the way you're describing it, Ava, by abstracting all of the combat into just this regular deck of cards system, yeah. it enables... It's not chasing after simplicity, it's just leaning on simplicity in this one area so that it can be complicated in a fun way with some of its other stuff. Yeah, with, you know, exactly that. Treaties exactly. and supply trains and leaders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 is, it is simple in the places where you need it to be simple so that you can really focus on actually looking at this at a strategic level while still having really interesting decisions when you actually get into a fight, whilst they will, those rules are so straightforward and so, yeah, like, you know, I've, I've pretty much taught them to you mm. already. Um, and that's quite a big deal for something like this that often, you know, we were talking about Combat Commander last week and it was like combat rules include, like fighting includes looking at two different charts of what terrain and what modifiers are affecting a thing and then working out what, that number is and what that number yeah, is what the yeah, difference yeah, between yeah. is and then what you're trying to roll 
Like, whereas this is just like, we're going to play a little game of cards. <laughs> or we're going to play a super simple game of cards. And this is what I don't understand about Maria is that like that card mechanic and that grid over a map that enables there to be suits and different things. I've not seen anyone steal that idea yet. And I do not understand it because if you put that in a simpler, more accessible structure of what the wider strategy was, um, I think you would have an absolute goldmine of a winner. Oh, but you know, as much as I complain, like to complain about GMT war games because they are so difficult to play. This um, is a histo games game rather than a GMT, just to be. Clear. Oh sure, yeah. Sorry, I was um, I was putting my own opinions into yeah, a yeah, rough yeah. ballpark. But yeah, sure, war gaming in general. It is such a good genre for finding individual rules where you're like, that's genius. Um, I, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, when I uh, tried to learn and play Virgin Queen in one of the most disastrous uh, board game days I've ever had, where I thought I'd learned it, invited my friends over, set the game up, which is a process that took in total about seven or eight hours of work from me. And then tried to, and then it was only in teaching my friends and they started asking questions that I realized, oh no, I did not actually know the game well enough to teach it. Yeah. Um, which is just horrifying. But despite that experience, what's still stuck in my head from that day is one of the rules in Virgin Queen that I thought was so mind-blowing, which was the way that it tracked the growth of Protestantism across Europe, which was done so marvelously simply that the tokens that showed which player controlled each area of Europe were simply double-sided. So when an area flipped from being Catholic to this growing sort of presence of um, Protestantism, um, you just flip tiles. And it was simple as that, but it drastically changed the, how easy it was to take and occupy those areas for countries that were Catholic or Protestant. And it just took a European war game and added this, like, uh, I mean, this religion, but sort of modeling it like a pandemic virus almost that spread. <laughs> and then different countries trying to work together to like be like, okay, we can't let Protestantism go any further because that'll be horrible for both of us. And I don't know. Obviously, this is not, this doesn't really track with what you're talking about with Maria Raver. I just more wanted to um big up that idea of an idea in a war game that's so good but never leaves a war game because war games are so like intractable and difficult to for, to access those ideas yeah i think i think that I, I think that's a really interesting example as well because like also like so ed beach who designed virgin queen and here i stand like went on to um do uh the latest iteration of the sid Meier's civilization computer games and like I'm sure that I, I did read it. not know that. Yeah. That's fascinating. And I think that like one of the things that he took with him, and I've seen I'm pretty sure I've read an article by him about this, was the idea that like having a map that you have like one layer of conflict happening on with another layer of stuff going on underneath that mm. is the thing that he tried to bring from Here I Stand and Virgin Queen into that. So that's why you now have this new thing about like building locations that are next to different things and you still have that thing of like the war war over religion being brought on a like almost a different plane so there's yeah he's really into that idea of having like right that here's the thing that's happening and underneath it there's a load of other stuff that's happening and trying to work out the interactions with those is a big part of the puzzle and um yeah i think it's really interesting that he's brought that to the video game sphere like i yeah it's it, all of this kind of reminds me like a little bit weirdly because it's interesting you brought civilization because i was thinking about crusader kings the whole time mm. and the newest installment of that and how i tried to get into it's a pc uh game uh for, for those who don't know where you are a king that does crusades and that's the whole it's there are so many systems and layers and and there's depth in that game that goes down like as 
deep as you want to chase it. But I think that the thing that like means that I can comfortably sit and play Crusader Kings almost as a role-playing game versus trying to play something like Maria in the same way is like digitally civilization or crusader kings just won't let you break the rules and if i ever try and learn a rule a war game i'm so worried about that the fact that you know like you're saying Quinn, that you sat down and you you didn't know how to play the game that you or you didn't trust yourself to teach it because you felt like you didn't yeah. know it is like yeah. so in like deep in those experiences that you can't get at the interesting decisions that are in there like crusader yeah, kings you can 100%. just play on a surface level and just see you can appreciate that the systems go incredibly deep but ultimately you're not the one that has to manage the systems it's done for you it's outsourced you know um, yeah and i think it uh, a thing that people might not know about um the sort of pc gaming world's version of heavy war games which is paradox's grand strategy games have really cornered the market on that so that would be crusader kings that's hearts of iron it's europa universalis but those games have in part been able to become as big and complicated as they have because of one thing and that thing is tooltips <laughs> like paradox grand strategy games are you know they are entirely powered by the fact that if you hover your cursor over any of the modern versions of paradox games literally anything a single word in a single menu you leave the cursor there for a moment a box will pop up with beautifully written, very terse text telling you what you need to know with hyperlinks. So if you don't understand what an elector would be with regards to your political box out, then you can follow that thread. And that that small change, that usability sort of option creates, it allows them to create almost bottomless complexity. And the fact that war games don't have that, you know, tabletop war games don't have that, makes it difficult for me to feel, even as a champion of board games, that the most interesting wargaming and simulations are happening on tabletops these days simply because the usability is so awful yeah and i think that that's i think that that's fair i think maria is better in that sort of direction than a lot of things but my my secret is like if you want to get into war games if you're uh, if you're excited by these kind of like historical narratives and getting to explore things from weird angles and learn stuff about bits of history you knew nothing about and then hopefully like learning to start challenging those narratives and and recognize that they're often uh, racist and colonialist and awful um if you're interested in getting into these games what you need is an incredibly patient unflappable and uh deeply precise person <laughs> who will learn the games and play with you and put up with your silly questions every 30 seconds <laughs> i am lucky enough to have one of those people in my life and i love him dearly um but if i didn't you know since i've moved away from that person i'm playing a lot less of these games than i used to uh, because i now have to be that person and i do not quite have the attention of detail you need um, to these games. I'm trying to train myself. I'm trying to get better at it. I'm trying to get to the point where I can learn and teach uh, these things better. But you kind of need a jack. <laughs> <laughs> On that subject, actually, uh, to those of you listening, if you're interested in getting into the um, world of wargaming on your tabletop, which is fascinating if you're interested in history or just very inventive game mechanics, um, or uh, wood or small two-dimensional <laughs> tokens. We have an article on shutupandsitdown.com, which you'll find if you Google Shut Up and Sit Down and the very best introductory war games. This was written, written by Matt Thrower to uh, solve almost exactly this problem in which he recommends classic war games that are easy to get into, like Hammer of the Scots, uh, Hannibal, Rome versus Carthage, Commands and Colors Ancients, uh, or uh, Conflict of Heroes, which is a sort of 
World War Two sort of um, kind of like um, Combat Commander, I believe, if that's right, Ava. I'm on shaky ground here, but it's that sort of like uh, moving your little two-dimensional. Uh, it's sort of like what we like about Undaunted Normandy, uh, World War Two on a very human scale. That describes conflicts of heroes, I believe. Sorry, that was just a bit of a, a businessy ramble. Ramble. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, it's good. It's good. Okay, uh, in which case we can just sting there, assuming Tom isn't sticking to his horrific no plans. Stings. No, no stings. No stings. <laughs> I mean, it's your edit. Uh, I'll jump in. <clears throat> Next up, I'm going to talk about a game from ELO uh, called Little Town. And this is designed by Shun and Aya Taguchi, a pair of Japanese designers. And uh, I will say that we've talked about Little Town. We talked about it a bit, I think, in 2019. ELO happened to send me another copy by accident. And I picked it up and I looked at it and was filled with positive memories and and endorphins to do with how much I like this game. And I would love to give it a little more coverage on Shut Up and Sit Down. Um, So this is a small-ish box, sort of mid-price range, I would say, you know, $20 to $30. But it's also what we call a Euro game, which traditionally big, heavy, complicated board games that, you know, turn running a German farmstead into an algebra exam. Um, Now, Little Town is pretty unique in that it is by far the simplest game of getting resources and then using those resources to build buildings all within a a mind to getting victory points. Um, But it's so simple that it's it's just frankly delightful. Uh, What you have in this game is a very small board. Everyone gets, I think, five workers in, in their color, which are just little wooden people. You get little wooden buildings in your color. And then in the middle of all of you is a shared board, which is mostly grass, but shows like some lakes and some forests and some rocks. And your turn could not be simpler. You've got two choices uh, in each round. You're gonna um, do, well, I think you keep going until everyone's passed. But one of your options on your turn is to take one of your five little workers and put them on any square on the board. And then what this does is it activates the eight squares around them. So if you imagine left, right, up, down, and then all the diagonals. Um, and when I say activate, I mean you get things. So if you put your little man or woman or you know person next to a lake, uh, then they're going to pull fish out of that lake for you. Or if you put them next to a tree in a lake, you're going to get fish and wood. Uh, you can also get coins. And then with these resources you're getting, you can also... Uh, build buildings and this is the other way you can spend your turn you can just spend the resources that are printed on the little buildings that are off to one side of the board to put a building like a windmill or a bank or a field of grain uh, on the board and then that becomes another space that generates things for people if they put their workers next to it so i might put you know a bank next to a lake and now whenever people put their workers next to those things they get fish from the lake and coins from my bank but Final twist is that if people want to use one of your buildings, if they put their worker going, oh, I'm going to use Quinz's bank, that's fine. They can, but they must pay you one coin for each building of yours that they use. And that summarizes pretty much the whole game. I feel like I could, if Little Town was actually in front of you, can I, I could use the sort of pieces to, as props. I feel like I could teach this game in two or three minutes. It takes maybe half an hour or 40 minutes. And it is quietly... One of the most sort of frictionless, pleasant, thinky little <laughs> games. Like, I mean, Tom, I, I hope you're laughing with uh, with familiarity there. This this game's just a little delight. Uh, did you have a nice time with it when I lent it to you? I did. I did have a nice time. I remember playing it uh, a few times with Matt. And I, I remember thinking that the thing that that game boils down to as, as in terms of its kind of the friction that it has there mm. is making a space accidentally very inviting for someone else is like the worst and like like the because 
if you build something, like I, I remember in like in a good example is like in a game, if there's like two tree spaces next to each other, if you put your little piece on either above either of those two spaces, because of the, you'll activate everything around it, you'll get two pieces of wood. And then mm -hmm. you then leap out to thinking, well, I want to be doing that like lots because I want to get wood as a resource and I want to build stuff with it. So I'll put a little house like immediately above that forest. So then it means that I'll, if I go in the other space that I've left, I'll then activate that and get a load of resources. And you do that and you build your building and you think that's what I'll do next turn. And immediately Mr. Matthew Lees puts his horrible piece <laughs> exactly where you just built that thing and he gets all the benefits for it for very low cost. <laughs> Yeah, but, I, and this is what Matt always likes to say to me, is when I get grumpy about him doing stuff like that, he always goes, it's because you were too greedy, and he's right. <laughs> if I'd been, if I'd made the space less good, he wouldn't have stolen it. So I, I do know that feeling. But then also, the geography you're describing has an additional wrinkle after that point. Because in the sort of, like, early to mid-game, where you're just making spaces that you might want to use, but then trying to build in such a way that even if someone else goes there, you can still take it in another space... By the end of the game, because you're really quite pressed for space on this tiny little shared board that's sat between all of you in a sort of lush, bucolic, light green colour, um, eventually you get enough buildings on the board that you run out of spaces. Because the buildings are also how you get victory points. So as you, you know, um, fill the board with spaces, you're making the board better and better and there's more resources. But eventually, if you make a kind of the equivalent of like a busy thoroughfare that's full of buildings, a kind of town centre, if you will, there's only going to be room for two or three workers to go there, which means turn order becomes more important. And that's something else you're considering. But yes, it, so I guess it's the satisfying arc, isn't it? In just a 30 to 40 minute game, you start with nowhere, almost nowhere that gives you resources. Then you start getting a few powerful buildings and then the board gets cramped and you enter a weird final act where you can all get resources, but there's less places to put your workers. And then suddenly the game's over. I just, I mean, I... I wanted to bring this up with you two, not because I had that much to talk about, because it is a very straightforward game. ELO's production of it is absolutely beautiful. I love the size of the box. I love the price point. I love everything about it. And not necessarily because it's that good. I don't necessarily think this is a 9 out of 10. I think it's a really well-placed 8 out of 10 because I've started to realize, and I would love to know if you two agree, Euro games as a genre, if we you know, like to think that they sort of began with Agricola, and that's kind of like what set the fire under everybody. Agricola is a really quite complicated, heavy game. And it feels sometimes that Euro games have only gotten heavier or, or sort of a, that has been the expected weight. And I think I would just really like to see a lot more games of resource management that I can teach in a few minutes that come in a small box that aren't absolutely exhausting. <laughs> what do you two think? I mean, this is why I got so excited about Glasgow. Um, yeah exactly is the, like it's not it's not gonna change the world it's not gonna change the way we think about things but in terms of like being able to put a simple euro game in front of people and just be like hey do you like efficiency maybe you'll like being really efficient in this random little world um mm -hmm. and just having that be just a few simple rules that click together well and are still an interesting game like as the person who's just spent like 20 minutes ranting about um the ludicrous box of maria like <laughs> oh my god i want more of that available i want more want more to be able to like start ramping people up into the idea of what why i get excited about these games these kind of euro style efficiency fiddlers um <laughs> without actually having to teach them 
a load of pedantic rules about exactly how you stable your animals. <laughs> right. When I moved down to Brighton in 2018 and I had to make a sort of a board game group from scratch, which was so much work. Um, I, you know, wanted they they came over and I didn't have to play a lot of stuff for work. So I was like, ooh, you folks haven't played a Euro game before. And I ended up teaching them Great Western Trail. (laughs) And it it was fine Mm. um, because, you know, I just about managed to shepherd them through the experience, no pun intended, and they all had a good time. But like, gosh, I did not enjoy the first five minutes of that day where I'd set the game up. They came over and looked at it and were like, what? No, they just, they truly did not believe they could do it. And they did. but just barely and it's like why did we have to do that like you know i I think i'm going to be keeping little town in my collection really just for what you're describing Haver, but just having a way into the genre to say look you can do this you like it before you know i throw them into the deep end yeah even like you can even do it as a as a little kind of palate cleanser before something like that just being like just a little test of like oh should we play this for half an hour it's like oh right if you like that how about this and then slam something meteor onto the table like a terrible yeah. person and for what it's worth i don't just think this is only the only role this has in a collection is like an entry-level euro game one of the things i really like about little town that i wish was in more euro games is that shared space you know we've got so many euro games now that are involved that involve putting things on a grid you know from like new york zoo and this podcast we just were talking about it little town in just having a grid that you all share like it takes it's a it's a it's a really nice sort of um sort of what's the word like paradigm breaking thing where it's basically a worker placement game and it's basically a grid filling game which we're intensely familiar with at this point but that shared worker placement space is also the shared grid that you're all building on and i think that is just really neat i really like that level of interactivity in a genre that is known for being uninteractive um and i I, again as i said i love the the presentation from yellow i just think it's really good and i've realized that in terms of games with town in the name a lot of people were talking about tiny towns last year um sort of mobile phone feeling game of building a little town i'll just say it here in the battle of the towns i prefer little town to tiny towns whoa that's i know in the battle of small box town games (laughs) yeah (laughs) i'm I'm really pinning pinning my uh my bgg review scores to the mass like Uh, i do want to go back a little bit um and briefly just say that like i think it's interesting saying that euro games have got more complicated more and more and more complicated over the years and 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 framing that like as necessarily a a, potentially a bad thing and that we should strip them back more and more because i'm thinking about two games that i played uh, around the same time as little town which were maracaibo Mm. and pipeline (laughs) and uh... pipeline is the like one of the perfect examples to me of a game that has layers and layers and layers of like euro madness where it's like you've got a pipe mania puzzle and you've got a shared board in the middle which has like first player benefit work well it's just no there's no benefit to being first player because everyone can do the same things but it's got like a pipe mania game with like an efficiency puzzle and like money and then like a refinement thing and it's got so many different bells and whistles but it just works because it gives you this massive ocean of possibilities but all those possibilities you can immediately see their impacts and it's exciting and then maracaibo for me was kind of the opposite of that where it had so many euro bells and whistles some things you you come to expect in that genre of game but ultimately added up to something where it was like it felt just like a summation of all those ideas dumped into something that didn't necessarily produce a feeling that was greater than its whole or that the decisions led to interesting player interactions and unique like possibilities yeah yeah Uh, like little town 
has the the that interesting core boiled down to like you know it, it's euro games games about making a decision and that decision rippling down later like later on into more and more cascading consequences and little town boils it down to that like at its most concise but i think that you can still manage to do that on a larger scale with something like pipeline but maybe not with in something like maracaibo yeah yeah what we're talking about is um elegance and minimalism but something could be minimalist and still massive you know you can build Mm. a minimalist palace and i would describe pipeline as a minimalist palace it's huge but nothing about it is like it's engineered you know Mm. it's 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 i I use ergonomic as a word a lot almost too much in my work recently but um (laughs) pipeline is the ultimate yeah i totally agree basically what a good point nice i I think that it is a thing that like it's 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 not the i'm I'm certainly not railing against the trends of like euro games getting more complicated but i am i'm frustrated that it increasingly seems to be becoming a selling point for euro games for them to have so many crunchy little parts and you could just get to say oh look but it's got this and this and this and this Mm. so it must be interesting because each of these individual things are really interesting right and it's like Mm. no you've got to make them mesh properly and if you don't you've just created an enormous puddle of overwhelming stuff and i think that a lot of people have got excited by the overwhelm that they feel in a heavy, heavy Euro game. And I think that people are forgetting that like that's got to have something behind it. My my poster child for getting that a bit wrong for me is, is Lisboa, which I really, really worked hard at and really struggled to make everything work. But it felt like I was just doing like four different puzzles at the same time and... It was like, oh, great, I'm doing quite well over there, so now I'd better pay attention to this thing. And now I've got to do... Oh, and, and, but there wasn't a there wasn't a holistic experience in it, for me. Like, yeah, I know a lot of people... Yeah, I, with that I think an, an interesting counterpoint to Lisboa that I wanted to mention um, when we were having our chat about victory points is, I think, Gugong, which is a Eurogame I really like and is in my collection. Um, and I don't have that many Eurogames, honestly. But whereas with Lisboa, all of the systems need to feed into one another. It's, you know, well, the shops will give you this and that'll help you in here, but you can only build a shop if you do this. Gugong has in the center of the board, like it's a game of mini games, really. Hmm. Um, but in the center of the board, the mini game is, um, oh, you have to advance your player pawn from the beginning all the way up the steps to meet the emperor. And it's like in a in a Vital Lacerda game, I could see like, well, if you as you advance down the steps, as you get close to the emperor, you'll get tokens you can put in this other game no gugong has this really interesting thing where what happens if you don't meet the end of emperor by the end of the game you lose <laughs> that's it full stop it's like how does this mini game interact it's like oh well you don't have to think about it but if you don't do it you lose and it's like <laughs> it's great because the rest of gugong is all powered by victory points and i've never seen anyone fail to meet the emperor i've just seen increasing amounts of desperation from players who prepared for it less in the final round <laughs> but like that's i think maybe over a little bit of what you're talking about rather than all of these things needing to crunch and sock it together in ways that are ornate it's like no it's, it's what is the most emotional and affecting thing and in the case of gugong just no you lose the game if you don't do this but don't worry but you will lose <laughs> i like that pressure i like that idea i've got i've got that on my shelf and i'm i'm keen to play it um at some point but i haven't had a chance to but like yeah, it's interesting though, because that also sounded like you were describing kind of the opposite in some levels, and that you were just—it is just like several separate games. Um, yes, uh, and I want them to be of... overlaid, but they don't. But it's, I think that's really interesting that they don't necessarily have to be interleaved strongly. They just need to like 
cohere in a way that is satisfying and yeah i don't know yeah i think coherence is the word it's coherence as opposed to you know clockwork yeah uh there's a sting there maybe question mark depends on how much (laughs) renegade tom is uh so finally i want to talk about a little knife fight in a historical phone box that is uh the king is dead by pio sylvester like formally released both in a first edition and a uh a different version called uh the king of siam um this is a game that is currently getting a very pretty new second edition and i have been a quiet fan of this for a long time so i was quite excited to put this in front of the rest of the team um it is a game where the king is dead you are in a country in turmoil either britain or siam in uh, (laughs) the uh the original um and you are kind of people behind the scenes a lot of a lot of the time and it is not a it's not supposed to represent war you're not supposed to be getting into like direct battles you're just vying for influence by making friends but you are doing this with a really simple set of rules that also isn't simple but like oh god (laughs) but simply complex it's simply complex it's hard. It's a hard one to talk about in terms of that fiddliness thing because, like, there's some very specific rules. You need to understand every rule in this game very deeply in order to do well at it. There's not that many rules, but they are very, very, very particular. Um, and some of them are just really clever and smart. So it's sort of an area control game where you're not one of the factions that's looking for control. So you're putting cubes onto a board uh there will be a conflict in each region at some point that gets settled and when it gets settled whoever has the most most cute whatever color has the most cubes in that region bearing in mind that you are not playing as particular colors in this game whoever whichever has the most cubes in a region takes control of that um however if there's a tie nobody takes control and depending on which version of the game you are playing the british the saxons or the french (laughs) um come and take that over and that leads to the possibility of no one really winning the game um although obviously someone does still win the game because it's a game um so yeah so that's happening so there's three different factions um of different colored different colored cubes and while you are manipulating stuff on the board every time you take an action to move some of these people around or put some more cubes on the board you also take a cube from anywhere on the board, remove it and place it into your court. The way to win this game if a faction win ends up dominant in the country um, is to have the most of those cubes in your uh, on your in court. your court. So yeah, so if you've got if if red is all over Britain and you've got the most red, you've won. Um, but Ava, Ava, how would I have the most red if red is also all over Britain? Because if I want to have the most red and I take red off the board, that means there's less red on the board, exactly. which means I lose more fights. Exactly. Wow. All you are trying to do is strengthen a faction. But in order to want to strengthen that faction, you also have to make it weaker. <laughs> so deciding <laughs> where you're making stronger and where you're making weaker is like the big one of the big, sharp, crunchy decision points of this. Um, the other thing, one of the other things that's really nice in this game is that, like, the actions that you're taking each turn, uh, there are nine cards, I think it's nine, 
um, uh, with a variety of different actions. On your turn, you may either play a card or you may pass. Um, those nine cards are the only actions you get to take during the entire game. Like Once you've played a card, you never get to play it again. There's not something that lets you pull your, your card back. You will only do nine things in this game, <laughs> um, which is lovely because um, it means that like every every time that there's a you're waiting for this struggle, like you're waiting in order for a struggle to take place and to decide who wins in a region, um, you have to everyone around the table has to pass, which means that every time you're like, is this? Am I happy with this? Am I happy with this situation? Yes. And, or am I happy enough with this situation that I'm not willing to put another card in? Yes, so you pass. And like so much of the game is passing. I was going to say, when you said you only do nine things in the game, really, um, I would only push back against that because in The King is Dead, I feel that passing, when I passed, is so juicy <laughs> that it did feel like I was doing something beyond the nine cards. In fact, sometimes passing felt like I was doing something more than actually playing a card did at the end of the game when because you've resolved eight of the nine regions and the game is only really taking place in two spaces on the board yeah it feels it's a lot more constrained yeah 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 and it's like um it's quite an aggressive kind of pass <laughs> like you're, yeah you're... well you haven't mentioned that this is a team game right well it's not necessarily the reason i've i've i've, I've tucked away a few little secrets because so first of all if the french saxons or british end up taking control of the region um, having more dominance than any of the factions, then there's a secondary rule for uh, how you determine victory. And this time you're looking for sets of cubes. So you want I'm going to jump in here because this is set. super confusing because you're saying French, Saxons or British because you're referring to different versions of the game which might have the French, Saxons or British as different antagonists. Those are not the three factions that exist as cubes in the game no yes sorry so I should, simplicity... well, let's just settle with the new edition the new edition they're french it's french people which i think makes less historical sense but also like kind of tickles my kind of like the gentle uh internecine rivalry between these countries <laughs> um uh so yeah so the french might the french might come and in that case, you're looking for a different con victory condition because this is this is effectively like the power structure failing so that an external force can come in and get involved, which means that what you need to do is rather than be part of the strong, rather than be prominent in the strongest faction, you need to be the person that can unite the factions. So you are looking to get from the from the red, red, yellow and blue cubes, you are trying to have a nice sets matching sets, which is good. Which is good. It's hard because like there's also like very specific tiebreakers for every single situation, and those are really really important. So there's where the fiddle comes in this game, and that's one of the things that might like tuck me away from saying like this is it's, it's such a sharp and pointy thing, but it is hard to teach for a game this simple. Um, yeah, and it is vital that everyone understands all of the rules really precisely, or they get into trouble. But it, it, it's a peculiar teach, right? Because it's on one hand, it's a game with a small board where all you do on your turn is either pass or play a card. You only have nine cards. It, I mean, in so many levels, it's as simple as that. But all of the rules overhead comes from teaching what happens once the game is over, yeah. which means to start playing, you teach everybody what happens at the end of the game, which is really fiddly and harsh. And then you have to keep all of those rules in your head, despite not ever seeing them in practice for the whole game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is nice. You know, any anything that like is really, really, really important that you gather like 
two or three different versions of the tiebreaker rules is <laughs> like oh but but it's also very very sharp every decision is really really pointed and particularly yeah you're right like you've got nine actions except for passing which is ludicrously aggressive and <laughs> almost like it's almost it can almost be a bluff you know you can say that you're happy with the board you say you're passed because you're happy with the board state but you might not be you might actually <laughs> want to change but you might want to let someone think that you're you're confident that this is the right situation when it absolutely isn't well i mean let's talk about the comedy of errors that happened in our game because that's <laughs> yeah. what i thought was happening so ava you were on my team and tom and matt were on a team and uh and you know matt was playing cards like or matt and you were playing cards oh, okay here's what here's what it was matt was playing cards to affect england and you know bend it in a way that he liked and collect uh, sort of cubes to his court so he would win if such and such a cube color won the overall game and he was expending these resources and then i was getting to say pass as if i was saying oh you've spent your resources to change the board in such a way that i also like but i didn't have to so i thought that was cool except then the play would get around to you ava my teammate and you would play cards as well and i'm like this is less cool now because <laughs> i i didn't know which direction people were pulling in i didn't know what everyone else thought the game was because as you've said the game is heading towards one of two conditions. Either one of the cube colors wins or none of the cube colors wins. But you need to prepare for those two eventualities very differently. So I didn't know what we were doing. Like if it had been a solo game, I would have said, I know what I think I'm doing and been happy with that. But seeing my teammate do something different, prepare for a future I didn't anticipate. Unfortunately, was... Gwyn, your teammate was me. <laughs> yeah, it was dis it was disastrous. Because well, I, I... I had, Matt was my teammate and he didn't know we were on a team for the first half of the game. <laughs> <laughs> That's how badly I was playing. I think Matt thought that I was on his side. <laughs> So like, I think one of the one of the things so it's worth talking about this briefly like it, this can be a two player game and it can be a three player game and in those most of the rules are as I've described them the um team game uh you flip into two teams alternating time alternating turns of who's on which team um and most of the rules are the same um although when you are looking for whether you've got victory in that one condition you are counting your own cubes as in i've got the most red so i win which means my team wins but if you're looking for the sets you need to match between the two teams because you get to pull your cubes together um that's nice but it is complicated to get your head around and mm. makes strategy harder like i would really strongly recommend that if you have a chance to play this you play it first without the team rules because while i love a bit yeah. of team rules everyone needs to know the game really well going into it and i think the part of the problem here was that i had played a couple of times before but it was quite a long time ago <laughs> and quinn's thought that i knew what i was doing and i 100 percent didn't <laughs> not to mention i've got an aversion to counting in games as we've already discussed this podcast and this is a game <laughs> where you need to have a really precise head on how many cubes people have got and me not quite having that possibly led to me infuriating quins more than i ever have i want to get really just because I'm, I'm, I'm keeping two thoughts bottled up in my head and I, i'm just desperate to get them out so i can relax first off the new osprey edition is gorgeous 
um, for a game which is just a board and some cards and some cubes. It's a lovely board. It's a lovely cards. It's lovely cubes. It's a lovely box. Um, I, I really like the way that Ospi are presenting their games at the minute. Um, second off, I did not get along with this game. I think I definitely would have liked it a lot more to the point of maybe even saying I like this game if we'd played it with three. I think two might have been a little, I don't know, a little underwhelming. Um, but um, it's the counting that kills me. It's the fact that because this is really an area control game where, you know, you're hurtling dangerously towards these two different end conditions or four different end conditions if you consider that any one of the three factions could win or they could all not win and then France comes in and races hell. Um, you just need to count everyone's cubes a lot all the time. And while people... If people play a card, necessarily, they change the board and change what cubes they have, which necessitates more counting. I think we were all talking about how, while it is elegant that you can take cubes off the board and put them in front of you, the game would have benefited from a track because a track would have just made you didn't... I Well, I say we didn't. Ava, of course, wasn't counting at all. But I wouldn't have to have counted every turn. Yeah, and um, I think that there's something in there. In like you, It is an area control game. But there is an area that is off the board. Yes. And that's, well, there's also- that's such a, like, getting that across to people, I think, is something that requires a little bit of an extra board or an extra, uh, yeah, something to symbolise it. I think it was also made harder that we were we were playing in a TTS mod that had a little, um, had bowls for the cubes, mm. which made it right. instinctively put them into the bowls. Shouldn't put them in the bowls. You should put them in a nice neat stack <laughs> where they line up and then that makes my me actually capable of counting um but that's aside because that's obviously like someone's implementation rather than the the game itself mm. but like i think you're right that i think that some there should be a, have been a court court board and it's kind of frustrating to see this game having got to a effectively a third edition and no one have been like hey wait a second why are we calling this the court and not having like a little picture of the court and showing the factions and where they are and how many things they've got and uh, it, I think that's a little bit of a shame because it would improve the usability no end. Um, I would say I think it is very sharp at two players because I think it yeah. is incredibly ruthless mm. and everything is known very easily. Um, uh, so I'm not sure if I would agree that two players is going to be disappointing. I think two players yeah, is going to yeah, be yeah. Like it at its sharpest because then you don't actually have to do that much counting and you just get to focus on ruthlessly making something happen. It might be less weirdly exciting because it's going to be a bit more obvious what people are doing. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's a, going to be a sharp, ruthless game. I think like it was interesting because I, I didn't have I didn't count at all, really, in that game. I, ca- I counted one thing for the entire duration of that game. And it was how many red cubes, or Welsh cubes, the red cubes that Matt was going for. How many red cubes does Matt have in his bowl? Because the way that I strategized for that game was like, right, if Matt's going for red, then I'll let him go for red, support him, and then we'll win together. But if he's, like, but if we need to, like, divert our strategy and go for, the like, the if the Saxons are going to take over, the French are going to take over, then we need a diversity of cubes so i'll just focus on collecting the other ones and then like you just need to count how many he has and just have you got enough of those and that's all you need to worry about was like the weird thing for me and like but th- that was just an aside that i don't i don't think the counting is that bad i don't want to put people off with that because i think that if you're playing it in the team yes. variant things are fuzzy enough that you don't need to know yes. the numbers all the time until the latest no game. 
you know no definitely no definitely i only disagree because i couldn't stop myself i was with you for 90 percent of that <laughs> sentence but i do think yes i do think that this was an, an inadequate first play for a few reasons i think you know that the rules we didn't quite internalize the team game is fussy we're playing it in tabletop simulator which denies you all the joy of uh, osprey's new edition i would definitely play this again with two mm. or three uh, that's super interesting i think i would only i think i loved the team aspect i think i would only play it as that because i think if, with two i would get so or with three i'd get so stressed about my individual decisions whereas as a team game i felt like i was much more able to like have a bit of a laugh with it and for things to be no fuzzy. no as a, <laughs> no as a team game you fe- wait hang on can we try this so if you had to play it <laughs> yeah. properly Oh, it would have been tough because you'd have taken it seriously. But as a team game, you don't have to take it seriously, which is exactly where I ended up because I didn't want to let my teammate down. I did. Yeah. I, I still wanted to play this as if I was, you know, playing to win with the same like uh, f- sort of fixation on the prize as if I was playing by yeah. myself. So, but I I got the feeling that, and I, I hate this feeling in games. If I'm trying to take something seriously, and other players have acknowledged that taking it seriously is too much work, <laughs> which you were correct to do. Well, no, I, I don't think. But I, I think that it was. It's more the fact that. <laughs> I liked the the thing that I like most about maybe the whole game, which, well, I mean, the thing that I thought was unique about it was that the fact that there's an important thing to note here is that there's limited rules on communication, right? It says you can't directly communicate with your team member during the game. And I loved the aspect of it where Matt was trying to get a handle on what Matt was doing and then trying to, because he was collecting a whole number of cubes at the start before he started focusing on the red ones. And then adapting my play to that and throughout the course of the game, hammering out this kind of symbiosis so that by the end, you know exactly what you're doing without saying a word. Yes, that is super cool. Um, and it's it's it, very interesting to have your teammate play a card. One of the nine cards <laughs> they have for the whole like 40 minute game. And then it when they choose to play a card, you're like, whoa, you don't even know what card they're going to play why they're mm. playing it and then you have to see what they choose to do with the board and go and, and, you, okay. and you intuit the meaning of what because like one of the most important cards in the game is the one that swaps because there are eight battles that are going to take place oh no sorry eight regions that are going to get decided in eight different like conflicts where you're going to add up the mm. cubes and you go through them one at a time and one of the cards just swaps the positions of two of those regions so you're now doing this one and watching matt play the only card he has like of that does that in in the game just immediately makes you go into this like the mind style like trying to beam thoughts between your digital heads because <laughs> we did play it yeah, in tts yeah. so we didn't have that like you know mm, sort of like looking at i'm doing a thing with my face but it's a podcast um but i i don't know i thought that was super sharp on top of the like already like crunchy little like puzzle the game presents I don't know. I think I came away from this like super positive and very eager to play it again. Um, oh well, if you if you're eager to play it again and it's one of Ava's, you know, like if Ava loves it, then I don't want to be the stick in the mud here. I think we had a not perfect first game, but I think there's tons to like. And I within the team dynamic, I specifically really liked Ava's, you know, Ava and Matt's questionable play of using almost <laughs> all of their cards in the first fifty percent of the game. Leave it with a like because they had a plan, I guess. Yeah, hopefully. I had a plan, but I miscalculated. Like, I actually don't think that I lost because I didn't count. I think at the end of the game, there was some counting problem, and that meant I wasn't quite sure when I should have known that we were doomed sooner <laughs> and might have been able to mitigate that a little bit. But the thing where I lost the game really early on, and this was a brutal thing to do to you, Quins, was I thought that I could 
push for the reds and get there quicker than Matt. And I just couldn't. Like, there just wasn't a way for me to do that. And I thought in my head that I was going to be doing it. So we were actually making the reds stronger and stronger during the course of that uh, that of that early part of the game. Okay. And it was handing it to Matt. And I didn't twig that at the right time. And that wrecked us because we then spent the rest of the game trying to uh, have the instability option, the Saxon rule, because that was the only thing that could beat the Reds where they'd got the to. French. The, the French. The French, sorry. Yeah, yeah the French. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that um, that was what they ended up going for as well. And they were in a better position for that. And I didn't twig that they were in a better position for that soon enough to change that. And that was where we were let down on the countings. But like, yeah. I think I'd... And I feel really bad about this. And this is one of the this is one of the big risks. One of the so Tom was just like really like hype about the lack of communication in this game. I think having communication rules in a team game like that, so you can't actually directly talk and discuss, loses one of the best things about team games, which is that you get to make a plan together and feel like you're heroes. When you can't communicate, it is very likely that you end up feeling either very frustrated with your teammate. Or like you're letting your teammate down. And both of those are horrible yeah. <laughs> feelings. <laughs> I, um, I experienced a lot of that. I As much as I thought it was really interesting. But the reason I, I was pushing to play this with two or three, if we play it again, was to do with... It was interesting and I was actually going to raise it as a positive thing, but I didn't enjoy it. Um, <laughs> the way that you played your cards early... Um, it denied me what I was enjoying in that game at the at the time, which was like, well, I'm just going to pass. I'm going to hang on to my resources until I know which of the mm. three victory conditions is more likely. Because probably if I let a few regions go, then I can start playing with an eye to claw my way towards the right objective. Yeah. But what actually happened is I sat back, but you sat forward, David. <laughs> you played a bunch of cards. In fact, you and Matt, by about the 60% mark of the game, had played all of your cards and then had the bizarre thing of sitting back and looking at your teammates and being like, well, it's our teammates' game to win or lose now, I guess. And of course, I had not asked to be in this situation at all and could not play my way out of it in any way. I, I, I um, love that which, frustration, though, when, like, because I remember one of my favorite parts of it was funny. Yeah, it was funny. And it, I thought it was fun as well because one of my favorite things that happened the entire game was I played something and then Matt went, like, why did you do that? And was, like, quite, like, you know, audibly like angry at what i did and then two turns later was like oh because i'd left <laughs> that the decision. Cool. like i left that there so that i was like that'll be one that we'll use a bit later on and then matt's immediate frustration not seeing it and then seeing it later being like oh and that little point when you when you like connect is just yeah, it's so clever i don't know i enjoyed mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. I, I think there might be a thing here like there's actually like accidentally a, a shut up and sit down meta of like <laughs> me and Quinn's actually make really bad teammates <laughs> at board games because I feel like I feel like a similar thing happened with the uh, let's play of uh, Concordia Venus where me and me and Quinn's are in a team and yeah it was just it I, I think that what Quinn's and I get out of team games is different and I think that the way we approach games is different. And that is absolutely fine when we're competing. But when we're trying to work together, I am not sure we're a good combo. <laughs> Which is a shame because Tom and Matt, I think, totally... are quite a good combo. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, I think Matt and I are, Matt and I are an okay yeah. combo. Because I enjoyed the... I, I think, and I think you and Tom are okay because we enjoyed um, our play of the, the defense oh, of Procyon yeah. 3. Yeah. Defense of Pizza Parlor mm -hmm. 5, uh, as we like to call it. Um, but yeah, because I think me and Matt... 
can be similarly edgy and competitive and then you two can be similarly you know yeah that's the way we've got to divide into teams isn't it i think it has to be that way and i think we need to know that (laughs) (laughs) i i might be fine with tom by the way like (laughs) i'm not saying that you're not i'm just saying that we're not compatible and like we need to do something about it i think this is what team building weekends are for right Um, (laughs) finding out who your enemies are (laughs) there we go uh that is going to about wrap it up for the shut up and sit down podcast thank you all very much for listening it's been an awfully long one so uh we'll probably shoot off uh there tom and ava thank you very much for providing your words and thoughts no problem thank you for having got loads of them in Uh, the bag here Got, you got a few more thoughts, I few, Tom. I actually, you know podcast. what? I was gonna. We'll talk about this after the podcast because I think I've got a cool, a salient link between the game we just talked about, The King is Dead, and a game that arrives in the post soon. I thought you were about to say like that the actual monarch of England had died while <laughs> yes, we were recording this podcast. <laughs>